The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Welcome everyone, it's Thursday, November 19th, 2015. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on WBCQ 5.11 Omegahertz. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be It was an intentional and coordinated act of evil that occurred in Paris last Friday the 13th, and yet still no one wants to face the cause. The issue of political Islam is not a new one to either Robert or myself, and today we plan to reflect on what happened this past Friday in Paris in a way that is more fundamental than just reporting on the facts or the names of the victims or the number of explosions or the technology used. In the second half of our show today, I'll be taking a look at Canada's state-sponsored TV network, among other things, the Canadian Broadcasting Network, the CBC, and I'll explain why it should be called the CBC No Evil, (laughs) because that's what I heard on that network during the attack, which was, I couldn't believe it, an insult added to injury. But I'll save my wrath for later in the show. Robert, what's on tap for you today? Well, of course, Bob, I can't go by without talking about the Paris attacks either, so this show looks like it's all going to be about that, but I'll take a look at it from an issue of social psychology in one aspect. Interesting. Well, before we begin that, don't forget, you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ 5.11 Omegahertz via shortwave transmitter in Monticello, Maine, and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. Robert? Well, Bob, of course, the opening clip, I think most people will recognize it as being from the film Casablanca. It was a spine-tingling rendition of the national anthem of France, Le Marseillaise. Its lyrics speak of taking up arms against foreign invaders, and no more fitting tribute can be given to any Frenchman who has fallen 
or had been wounded by the terrorist, terrorist attacks of last Friday. Mm-hmm. And yeah, no more fitting tribute can be given to those Frenchmen who oppose its own government's appeasement of the Sharia pushers in their midst. You know, after the attacks, I noticed that many on Facebook, my social media of choice, had chosen to show the French flag as their profile picture in sympathy for the murdered and the injured. And well, I wrote the following. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> in well, a way. in a way it does, but just listen to what I have to say on sure. it, uh, my tack on this. This is what I wrote on my Facebook post. You know, while I can certainly empathize with my Facebook friends posting the French flag in solidarity for the peaceful French citizens gunned down today, I think we should consider what that flag has come to represent. You know, a flag is a symbol of a nation and a nation's government. And in a, in a democracy, the two may be considered the same thing. If so, then the French flag has come to represent surrender and capitulation. It is the symbol for everything that is wrong with French, with France. Socialism, its appeasement to Nazis in the 40s and its appeasement to Islamists today. Its lack of respect for individual rights and freedom. You know, when Anders Breivik murdered those children in Norway, I posted the Norwegian flag. For the same reason, many post the French flag today. But I'm done posting flags of countries which have intentionally destroyed themselves. Now, that's what I posted on Facebook. And in in response, a friend in Norway posted the clip from Casablanca. He gets it. This was a scene from the movie where true patriots living under the French Vichy government in league with the Nazis were continuing to fight the Nazis. How mm-hmm. appropriate today. You were going to say something, Bob. Well, I was just wondering that if a flag is a symbol of a country, what does the red in the Canadian flag symbolize? I'm still working <laughs> on that one. I actually want to you know say that. it out loud. Well, no, no. Historically <laughs> speaking, red and white were the official colors of, of Canada, I think, given to it at its founding by Queen Victoria. I may be mistaken, but I think that that was the case. I don't think red was a political statement at all at the time. But no, that's what I, I mean. Know. It just... It just shows you how symbolism changes, right? You can play with those things. Oh, for sure, yeah. But, you know, I'm done with those flags of countries, like I said, who are basically committing suicide. It's just mm. when I see the French flag, that's what I think today, so why post it? I'll, I'll rather play La Marseillaise than, uh, than fly that flag. Um, but like everybody, when I first, at the Paris, first heard of the Paris attacks, I was like any sane person or any normal person. I had the initial and quite reasonable suspicion that the perpetrators were going to be Muslim. These same reasonable people knew that these Muslims were a particular breed too, not just Muslims, but literalists of the Quran. They were jihadists. They had to be Islamists. They were fundamentalists. They were advocates of Sharia. They were the ones who had truly That's a distinction that has to be made, yeah. They were, yes, of course, you've got to make the distinction, of course, all the time, but I don't like apologizing or, you know, saying, you know, uh, of course, all Muslims aren't murderers, you know, because that, that gets a little tired. We know that. You, you, you know, I'm going to be talking about that, and you're correct, but there is a place for one or two clear distinctions. And I really, I always distinguish between Muslims and Islam. They're two different things. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Of course, related to each other, but not the same thing. No, and you could write many shows on that very topic. Already you did. Know, Plan yeah. to do a few more in the future. <laughs> <laughs> these people, these jihadists, these Islamists, they were the ones who had truly submitted to the will of not any particular entity, but to the will of the collective, their collective. It takes a great deal of self-denial, of self-deception, of guilt-ridden, willful ignorance to suggest 
that the initial response would be that these were possibly Christian terrorists continuing the 20th century crusades, or disgruntled employees, or disenfranchised citizens, or acts of a single crazy like Brevik, or a domestic issue, or a foreign issue, or by someone who feels completely excluded or someone under tension and stress. You know, the U.S. Department of Defense stand on the um, shooting massacre at Fort Hood back in 2009 by jihadist Nidal Hassan was that it was an incident of workplace violence. Such willful denial of the true cause of this jihad enables its continuance. If you can't define your enemy, you can't kill him. Now, of course, Bob, you're going to be talking uh, about this in, in much more detail about this deflection away from the root cause of these terrorist attacks by the media oh, later. Yeah. But I would like to comment that while we all know that the direct cause is the political ideology of Islam, the enabling cause is our own prevailing political ideologies of collectivism and altruism. It is only because Westerners feel somehow to blame for the deplorable situation in Arab Middle East that we feel committed and compelled to commit cultural suicide and penance for our past actions in that area of the world. You know, combine this irrational belief with the more rational practice of, you know, tolerance towards one's, one's neighbor's religious beliefs um, and a complete ignorance of the majority of the population about history, political philosophy, and what constitutes the difference between a race, an ideology, and a religion, and you have a perfect storm for cultural self-immolation. While the West has historically contributed to the current political structure of the, of the Arab world, it's only been as a direct consequence of the war with the Ottoman Empire and the cons consequent breakup of that empire after the Great War, 100 years ago. The complete history is such a complex tapestry of tribal violence, it's beyond the comprehension of most, including myself, to confidently say which particular event or events contributed most to our current state of affairs. Well, it's Was a continuum, it fact, Robert. Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's a continuum. History is a continuum. It's not just even 100 years or 200 years or oh, 500 no, years or 1,000 years. And if you, if you understand the laws but of I'm causality... But I'm talking about Western... I'm talking about the un Western... Understood. Yeah. Because yeah, uh, it addresses a point that I want to get at later, too, the belief that all this is something current. It's not. And the fact that there's oil in the Mideast... That wasn't what motivated these conflicts back a thousand years ago. <laughs> you know, of course not. No. no, nobody even knows that. They don't get it. You know, it doesn't matter if it's oil or, as I was going to say, you know, the fact that uh, Gavrilo Principe, uh, the assassin of Archduke Ferdinand, who started the Great War, was an Orthodox Christian Serb who harbored a deep resentment to his Muslim landlords. Or was it the, the Balfour Declaration, which uh, helped create Israel? Or the consequences of the hundreds of different treaties and alliances of the ruling families of Europe? It's so complex and it goes back so long, you just can't just say, oh, it was this, or it was that, or it was a bunch of these things. In fact, it was all of these things, and none of these things. As always, the greatest contributing factor in any political conflict is philosophy. It's the ideas which rule the world. It's the ideas behind religions which rule the world, not religions themselves. It's the ideas behind treaties and alliances and ruling European families which guide history, not the treaties or alliances or families themselves. It's the ideas 
held by men which ultimately lead to the blind adherence to any particular movement like ISIS. Or in like all, any political party, really, you know. Politics oh, any, is the any same collective. Way. Any yep. collective. Yeah, it's ideas. In all the cases of violence throughout the long history of Europe and the Middle East, we have as the root cause the idea of collectivism. It goes by many other names. Racism, the easiest collective to join by birth. Tribalism, socialism, fascism, communism, nationalism. This is the notion that an individual's own life is subservient to the group, the collective. It is sacrificial. It is also the notion that an individual's own will, his thoughts, his mind, his means of cognition are at the mercy of the collective and the leaders of the collective. We are witnessing in Europe and the Middle East a war between irrational collectives. Caught in the middle are the millions of people who simply wish to be left alone, who do not wish to belong to any collective. Muslim, non-Muslim alike, they actually might believe in the religious beliefs of that collective, but are not blind puppets to any leader. There are many Muslims who simply wish to believe in a god, but not follow any maniacal ISIS leader hoping to hasten the prophesied apocalypse, and so they escape to freer nations like ours. Just as there are many Christians who don't go to church, and many atheists who wish to live their lives in peace away from all religious conflicts. The appeal to join a crowd is compelling, you gotta admit. It is this compulsion that drives men to lose their sense of self at times, and as a result, they are easily led, like lambs to the slaughter. The power of a person's willingness to comply to an authority figure has been demonstrated by psychologists in the past. Most notable is the Milgram experiments performed by Yale psychologist Stanley Milgram, who pondered the question... Could it be that Nazi war criminal Adolf Eichmann and his million accomplices in the Holocaust were just following orders, or could we consider them all accomplices? That's what, spa that's what spawned his research into compliance. And I remember actually learning about that experiment when I was uh, taking first-year psychology way back in the 70s. His experiment had subjects deliver electric shocks to Confederates, who in reality did not really receive shocks, but acted as if they did. But that fact wasn't known to the subjects. The subjects delivered the shocks solely because the experimenter told them to do it. Fully 65% of the subjects delivered shocks they believed were actually physically damaging and potentially lethal to the Confederates. These 65% continued to deliver shocks even though the Confederate would bang on the wall and complained that he had a heart condition. Milgram wrote about his results in a 1974 article called The Perils of Obedience. This is from that article. The legal and philosophic aspects of obedience are of enormous importance, but they say very little about how most people behave in concrete situations. I set up a simple experiment at Yale University to test how much pain an ordinary citizen would inflict on another person simply because he was ordered to by an experimental scientist. Stark authority was pitted against the subject's strongest moral imperatives against hurting others, and with the subject's ears ringing with the screams of the victims, authority won more often than not. The extreme willingness of adults to go to almost any lengths on the command of an authority constitutes the chief finding of the study and the fact most urgently demanding explanation. Ordinary people 
simply doing their jobs and without any particular hostility on their part, can become agents in a terrible, destructive process. Moreover, moreover, even when the destructive effects of their work became patently clear, they are asked to carry out actions incompatible with fundamental standards of morality. Relatively few people have the resources needed to resist authority. And that, of course, was by Milgram back in 74. Such social psychology experiments are called compliance experiments or submission experiments. And note that the word Islam translates into English as submission. So when he's studying these people, delivering shocks to other people, he's studying some of the root causes behind why a, a person submits to the will of mullahs and imams. 65% of normal adults will inflict harm on others with no other threat over their head than winning the disapproval of a scientist. It's no wonder, then, that an Islamic country, which holds the death penalty for apostasy, has almost full compliance by its population. The religion of, um, or rather the country of Saudi Arabia, has a religion which is 100% Islamic. I wonder why. The percentage of Iraqis who believe that Sharia should be the law of the land is 99% according to a Pew Research Center study. Clarity Lee's people cannot be considered individuals. Instead, they have submitted their uh, to authority of stronger-willed people. Reactive body armor? Multi-dimensional adaptability? Internal transporter nodes? The drone possesses superior technology. It will fully mature in less than two hours. However, its Borg shielding is not yet active. We can still terminate it, but we must act quickly. Hold on a minute, Seven. I want some answers first. What normally happens when a drone disengages from the maturation chamber? It awaits instructions from the collective. So without those instructions, it has no designation, right? No purpose. Correct. If we can keep him from interfacing with the collective, maybe we can give him a purpose. Captain. This is the most advanced drone ever to exist. We could teach him our value, Seven. We could show him what it means to be an individual. If we fail, if the drone were to be assimilated, the Collective would become far more powerful. What I'm proposing is the only defense we have against that possibility, short of murder. And that's an order I'd prefer not to give. Seven. There were a few crew members who had similar doubts about you. The situation is different. Is it? A Borg? Disconnected from the Collective? Unsure of its identity? A potential threat? But we succeeded. We're going to pull the same trick again. Only this time, you're going to be the teacher. I am to instruct the drone in the ways of humanity. Think of it as first contact. And you are our ambassador. Maturation cycle is complete. We are Borg. State our designation. Designation is irrelevant. You are not part of the collective. You are an individual. You will receive your instructions from me. 
insufficient. You must comply. Insufficient. We are Borg. My designation is Seven of Nine, tertiary adjunct of Unimatrix Zero One. But you may call me Seven of Nine. Seven of Nine. You will comply with my commands. Seven of Nine. Yes. We are not Borg. We are individuals. Do you understand? State our designation. Apparently not. We are living through a movement in the Middle East spreading to Europe and Africa at the moment which can quite aptly be called the Fourth Reich. It does not differ from the short-lived Third Reich of Nazi Germany and holds as its mandate the same goals that Hitler did. It is collectivist and it is anti-Semitic. ISIS and the Iranian state which supports it have a stated goal of the obliteration of Israel and of all Jews. How in the world can we permit this to happen? Why? Well, because the voices of our own authorities, our political leaders in the media are telling us to. That's why. They are acting as the experimenter in the lab coat. We are the compliant subjects. The victims are not only Jews, but any of us who refuse to submit. There is constant and direct pressure from our media personalities, political leaders, celebrities, and the like for all of us to comply with their twisted sense of morality to submit to their will, just as Muslims submit their wills to that of their leaders and their prominent citizens. When I post on social media that I'm concerned about the influx of 25,000 Syrian immigrants without the proper security checks, I'm called a racist. This kind of vitriolic response comes from the left, who hold that the collective consciousness must be followed. When they say racist, they obviously, obviously mean the collective, since Islam is not a race. And in fact, according to the early taxonomy of races, Syrians and Europeans belong to the same race. Caucasoid. Mm -hmm. Even if there were any validity to classifying humans under a racial taxonomy, the argument that one who opposes political Islam is a racist is the response of a fool who simply wishes to discredit any argument by smearing someone with one of the most hated and feared epithets. Racist. Consider the backlash one gets when one opposes recycling, or denies the significance of climate change, or eats meat, or harvests harp seal pups, or drives a hummer. That is the uh, man in the white coat telling you to ignore your own mind and reason and accept as given that he knows best. He is, after all, the authority. <laughs> Before the attacks in Paris on Friday, I was going to continue my talk last, uh, from last week on the childish behavior of the Yale students and the students of the University of Missouri. It's quite typical that these people have posted their disapproval of how the media has turned away from their protest over contrived racism on campus to focus on the plight of the Parisians. But in a sense, my coverage of the Parisian attacks by examining how people like the terrorists comply with authority and how Westerners comply with the message of the media encompasses the compliance of university protesters to the social norm of labeling all white people racists. Whether it is the advocates of Sharia, the suicide bombers in Paris, the media, the politicians, or the petulant cry bullies on college campuses, they all have in common their willingness to subordinate their minds to the will of others. They are the true collectivists. They are the true racists. This is from the New York Post of November 16th. Quote, Either you're with us or against us. 
Columbia student activists are pestering peers to attend campus protests and walkouts in, sol in solidarity with college students at Missouri and Yale or risk social isolation, students say. Organizers posted flyers and sent Facebook messages inviting undergraduates to wear black clothing and join two demonstrations last Thursday to support people of color who are marginalized and threatened. But some students worried they would be ostracized if they did not participate in uh, or dress in sync. One college parent said, quote, There's been a campaign of intimidation where students are going dorm to dorm, floor to floor, and asking students to go back to their dorms and put on black if they're not wearing black, the parent said. My daughter told me people are uneasy and fearful. She added, her personal politics are left-wing, and she shares their sympathies, but she doesn't like feeling that she can't wear blue if she wants to wear blue, unquote. That's from the <laughs> New York Post. So yeah. we see the exact same kind of pressures going on, uh, which drive people away from their own free choice, their own mind, their own reason. Whether it's the students at the campus uh, of Yale or the... Uh, average person on the streets of uh, a Syrian town or a Frenchman, you know, who hears uh, from his media that we must accept tens of thousands, a million Syrian refugees, you know. While such an intimidation tactics are quite mild on the university campuses and easily ignored, you can only imagine the kind of pressure tactics a Muslim man or woman must feel every day living in an Islamic country. It isn't simply a matter of refusing to wear black if some campus thug approaches you in your dorm. It's a matter of cover up your women or we will kill you. Remove this kind of pressure and many Muslims would simply want to live peaceful, secular lives. And that is the reason many wish to leave such countries and live in the West. But unfortunately, they're being hounded by the Islamic collectivists who simply won't leave them alone. I pity them. I pity those of us who are not Muslim, who feel we must submit to the mob mentality which allows such an invading army of Islamists into their country. It's time we, we recall the words of the French national anthem, La Marseillaise. Arise, children of the fatherland. The day of glory has arrived. Against us, tyranny's bloody banner is raised. Do you hear in the countryside the roar of those ferocious soldiers? They're coming right into your arms to cut the throats of your sons, your women. To arms, citizens, form your battalions. Let's march, let's march. Let an impure blood water our furrows. That's great, Robert. You know, last Friday night, I, as I watched a tragically predictable and foreseen Playing out of events in Paris, France, I was recording the audio track of CBC Television's live stream online during the state network's reporting on those attacks. And I have to tell you, suddenly I wasn't sure which was the greater evil. Those who perpetrate these evils or those who consistently deny that such evil exists. Mm -hmm. and, and who cut off discussion or debate on such matters. You know, for, for hours I listened in utter disbelief and incredulity at the, at the degree to which all of the CBC reporters avoided any mention of Islam, terrorism, they, they finally got around to saying that word, or anything that might connect the dots beyond the station's superficial coverage of explosions and injuries. So on the other side of our upcoming bumper, when we return, we'll be taking you back in time to this past horrific Friday the 13th, just as the Paris attacks were underway and the media was reporting live the events as they were happening over a period of several hours. We'll be back.
You call the commandant? Yes, Herr von would like to have a word with you. Yes, I want to compliment you on an extraordinary meal. Thank you, sir. And this gâteau au chocolat Saint-Hélène is superb. <laughs> you are too kind. I haven't had French cooking like this since I was in Paris last week. You were in Paris last week? Yes, you wouldn't recognize it. hostage takers are there, nor is it clear uh, the motivation behind any of these attacks. Many of you on Twitter asking uh, what the motivation is. We do not know that at this hour. Uh, no one has claimed responsibility, nor has there been any indication from any of the attackers, uh, what the French president is openly calling terrorists, about what the motive uh, for this is, what might be behind it. And we are being very cautious not to ascribe motive at this hour either, uh, because the reality is we don't know. Paris, since around 4 o'clock uh, Eastern time, 4 o'clock in this country, and for a number of hours now, has been under attack by uh, a number of uh, terrorists. Again, we'll use that word since the French president himself is using it. Uh, the authorities in Paris say that they believe some of the explosions were due to suicide bombers. Uh, we know that there were other attacks in a couple of restaurants in the 10th and 11th district in Paris. Those attacks happened with automatic weapons and people were killed and we've seen uh, the pictures of, of bodies on the street. I want to bring Ray Boisvert back um, just for a moment. Ray, to see if you can think of any situation that has been, that is like this. Is there, is there another a terrorist attack or attack that we have seen in another major capital that would be similar to what we have seen here tonight? A quick word of caution though, although I'm very, I'm quite certain in my own mind as to what motivated this and who may be behind it. Uh, I am, uh, I would be remiss not to recall the Anders Breivik attack in Oslo around uh, 2010. And in that case, uh, a series of explosions downtown Oslo. Then after that, uh, about 69 young persons were killed on an island, most of them representing uh, their children of the governing um, Socialist Party. And it was really one person, highly motivated, an extremist motivated event, but took many by surprise because it had nothing to do with the religious fundamentals we had seen or experienced in, in, en masse up to that point. This was some sort of crazy um, Christian religious yeah. zealot. Yeah. Did you notice that hint of contempt in the voices of the CBC hostess and her guest when he said the words, Christian zealot? Hmm. It was palpable, Robert. And, and just what was the name of that religious fundamentalism he referred to? What religion was that? I must have missed it. Oh yeah, the Christian religion. <laughs> to, to, to say, for that guy to say that, quote, I would be remiss not to recall, that's an obscenity, given the context and the previously admitted knowledge in the developing situation. That, that, was, that was happening live while the event was going on. And that, those clips, by the way, were all collaged over several hours, and I've got lots more of them. I mean, he had to go all the way back to 2010 to cite a single such incident, whereas those religious fundamentalists we've experienced en masse, end quote, could be cited every few hours, practically. And what religious fundamentalism is he talking about? Why don't they name it? How can we fight something that we dare not name? Extremist motivation? Extreme what? Motivation to do what? I waited for hours and hours just to hear even one of them mention the words Islam or political Islam or Islamists in the context of the terrorist attacks. 
Instead, event references like Charlie Hebdo were used as adjectives to describe the nature of the current attacks. Mm -hmm. Attacks that are explicitly and purposely motivated by Islamist ideology and political Islam. Talk about having contempt for your own viewing audience to say nothing of truth and reality. CBC's audience must be comprised of the dumbest people on the planet, the way they kept talking down to them all night long as, I, as I'm sitting there forcing myself to continue watching their coverage. It was a complete process of being treated like some kind of, you know, mental incompetent, incapable of comprehending that the attackers had not yet been specifically identified, nor had the routine event in the philosophy of militant jihad yet played itself out. You know, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck and swims like a duck, hey, who knows, it could be an elephant. <laughs> <laughs> a Christian fundamentalist. <laughs> yeah. And boy, is that ever one big elephant in the CBC newsroom. Holy cow, those guys are Islamophobic to the nth degree. Or maybe they're just Islamists, out and out. Hmm. I can't reconcile it. Who's the real Islamophobe? The person who's perfectly comfortable talking about Islam in understandable and objective terms or the person who avoids the word as if it were a curse that could cast him into the eternity of hell. You know, there I, I say it, CBC no evil, speak no evil, is evil. That's mm. the problem. Unbelievable what we just heard there. They call it balanced reporting, don't you know, Robert? Yeah, of course. You know, on our show, Just Right, we don't balance irrationality against rationality, faith against reason, force against persuasion, reality against obvious fiction and unreality. All of this is the mandate of Canada's state-funded propaganda's TV network, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, otherwise known as the CBC. And, of course, that was a collage of commentary samples, as I said, of our live coverage. There was a lot more. It must be pointed out you know, that through all of their cautionary don't rush to conclusions about who might have carried out the attacks, that the CBC itself had already broadcast lots of evidence pointing to that unavoidable conclusion. To go out of its way, to entertain the possibility that it could be a fundamentalist Christian attack, by saying, actually saying the word Christian, mm -hmm. and never, 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 never once saying the words Muslim or Islam or political Islam, unbelievable. A stunning and glaring evasion of reality and reason on a government-funded national and international scale. You know, I understand how at the very outset, for reasons in being cautionary before drawing any inferences about the nature of a reported violence, initial reports merely indicated, you know, some kind of shootout in a restaurant. That's what I heard first. And, and that just didn't have the scent of being anything more than it was, a shootout between rivals of some sort. That's what I thought for the first while. Of course, in the end, it never was a shootout, it was a shooting of people without guns by people with guns. We'll hear a little more about that a little later. But there's a lot of distractions that people allow themselves, uh, you know, to get into on all of these things. Like you, I had a lot of <laughs> discussions going on in the weekend over Facebook. And there was one very, I think, um, person of goodwill, a lot of people of goodwill, who make a comment similar to this that we got from uh, one of my fa Facebook friends. I don't want to pick on her because I think her, her point was good. But here's what she said. she said. She said there's a fine line between not energizing evil deeds and fueling them by focusing only on the negative. The reality is that those responsible for evil deeds need to be rooted out and dealt with at the same time our energy needs to go to go to positive thoughts and not to unrealistic suspicions and growing fear of our own safety. In truth, evil deeds within humanity have occurred since the biblical days, etc., etc. You know, and she says we should, you know, 
not focus on that. Have a smile on our face. Remember, got a smile when you say freedom, Robert? <laughs> yes, and, I and We get this all the time, and at no time whatever does anybody suggest holding innocent people responsible for any of these evil acts? And I keep wondering why this question's constantly raised out of context. It's that guilt again. Unless those asking the questions are the ones drawing the con connection between the innocent and guilty. So don't get distracted by these nests. You know, we have to be focused on the evil. When we say those responsible, that's not just a group of people who have committed vile and cowardly acts of violence. It's their intolerant ideology that's explicitly expressed itself through those responsible. The proper question to ask is not who's responsible, but what is responsible. Let's face it, Robert, who's come and go over, over centuries as yep. victims of their own ideologies? But the what has remained with us throughout history, the political ideology of Islamism. You know, the fact that evil deeds within humanity have occurred throughout history is precisely why we should stop repeating it. And no, it doesn't justify knowingly allowing that evil in our midst. Evil needs to be destroyed in every way possible, the most important being waging the war of ideas that is so lacking and which is the very thing that is being avoided by the CBC and other appeasers of evil. Evil does not offer us a choice and cannot be fought by positive thoughts on the part of its intended victims. And that has all the makings of a greater tragedy as we saw on Friday the 13th. Another thing I saw that was I found distressing was that various members of the public and media in their reaction to the attacks was, you know, said Correctly, they said, you know, there's no reason to live in fear for us here in the West based on the odds of being a direct victim of terrorism itself. Well, as far as that argument goes, I'd have to agree. But I disagree with the other half of it. Namely, that therefore there's no reason to feel overly concerned about any possible consequences. But the effects of terrorism go far beyond the acts themselves. The terrorists' desired effects and consequences occur after the attacks. That's what we're doing now. They love us to be talking about this. And they're instituted by the victims themselves. The real objective of many terrorists is to get their victims, you know, to institute what they call security measures. Since 9-11, airports around the world have never been the same, and the freedom and security of air travel that we knew before that monstrous event have never returned. So, too, it will be right in your own neighborhood should such an event occur close to home. You know, even if one such attack should occur on Canadian soil, if you want to just get a taste of what life will be like in Canada or anywhere in the West where such attacks occur, listen carefully to what you are about to hear. You know, when Charlie Hebdo happened in January, everyone thought it can't get any worse than this. And you recall we had that day with the when we had the attack on the kosher supermarket here in Paris at the same time as they captured the two gunmen who had held the Charlie Hebdo attack. Everyone thought it couldn't get any worse, but tonight has just been just the worst nightmare. We've been living with this constant security over the last 10 months that's just been getting more and more intense. We've gotten quite used to having soldiers on our train stations. When you go into a supermarket or, or a large shopping centre here in Paris, you have your bag checked. And we've been always told, if you like, by the Interior Ministry that they are always tracking all these types of alerts in Paris, that it really is a dangerous situation. So the fact that it's happened like this tonight at events where people were present, these were all, if you like, venues where a lot of people were at the Stade de France for the football match. These are places where a lot of people are out and about tonight. And for that to happen 
in what is meant to be the city of light, the city where people can go out in the evening and just enjoy what seemed to have been the last wonderful evening of the autumn. Whenever you talk to police, you say, how bad is it? And they say, however bad you thought it was during Charlie Hebdo, the last terrorist attack back in January, they say, this is nothing like it. This is going to be bad. All of a sudden, a series of attacks, and in the first few minutes, not clear really whether these attacks were related or not, but soon it became clear that they were, in fact, terror attacks. They do seem to be coordinated. And One of the questions here, of course, tonight is who might be behind these attacks? Why did the attacks unfold the way they did? And uh, we're going to hear from uh, various security analysts, uh, and, and we've reached one of those by phone, a security and terrorism expert, John Thompson. You've seen the same information we have. You've, you've watched the, the facts as they've come out. You know what these targets are. John, uh, what do you make of, of what's happened in Paris tonight? Well, this is a, a tactic we've seen before. The, the Chechens developed it in several cities in southern Russia. We, Mumbai, the uh, Westgate uh, mall attack in Nairobi. Uh, what was apparently planned with the Charlie Hebdo uh, attacks, it wasn't just the attack on the uh, newspaper office last uh, January. Uh, and also, we've been warned. Uh, ISIS has said they're going to uh, start a cascade of attacks. They've been... Uh, hinting at it for several months and there's been ample intelligence especially with this wave of refugees in the last couple of months that a lot of uh terrorists were mixed up with the uh, the refugees and i think paris might be the first there might be a whole cascade of attacks although there are a couple of things i you know we should point out uh, cautions here one is we don't know who is responsible no one has claimed responsibility we certainly don't know how those who are responsible got here whether they're you know whatever that's, group they happen to true. be there's a lot of stuff um, we we don't know about this no but the, the point is there's only been uh, no other terrorist groups have used this method except for the uh, the jihad movement for al-Qaeda and its subsets, uh, the Chechens and uh, ISIS. They've also launched attacks like this inside Iraq, um, in Somalia, and uh, at, at times in Afghanistan. That includes the, the sort of the classic diversion with suicide bombers to uh, draw the attention of police in one direction and then unleash the gunmen on a, a series of targets elsewhere. I, I just wanted to draw, though, a couple of important distinctions, one that we have throughout the evening that we don't know who's responsible yet, but it, uh, it does make sense to kind of look at this from a, uh, an educated uh, analysis standpoint, which is what you provide. Uh, we certainly have no reason to believe that the people who came in here, as far as I know, had anything to do with, with the movement of refugees, which, you know, is, is a well, potentially you're, you're a pretty right contentious thought. So, so let, let's, yeah, so let, let's, let's, you know, raise that caution um, but I'll tell you John what I'm curious about here is you know w when there are attacks on airliners for example we see security get incredibly tight and if that security is done properly you can pretty well prevent somebody from getting on an airliner when a city is the potential target when an area outside a sports stadium 
or a restaurant or a music hall is a potential target. That must be very difficult, if not impossible, in, in, in a Western country for police to guarantee that, that it can't be a target. Well, that's actually the, the case. This is the, um, the new bar that uh, we have to, to meet. And again, we knew with the Mumbai attack that we'd see this sort of tactic go in elsewhere. And it's, it's almost impossible to defend against. Your, your frontline defense, more than ever, is adequate intelligence because you cannot guard everything in a city. It's just not possible. All right, John Thompson, uh, security analyst, thank you very much for your insights and thanks for uh, joining us this evening. You're welcome. Well, Robert, imagine my incredulity when after hours of listening to CBC No Evil Evasions of the Self-Evident, of all people, they should interview none other than security and terrorism expert John Thompson, who we just heard, at least until he dared to suggest that Islamic terrorism could be behind the attacks, at which point the interview promptly ended. John Thompson, of course, has been a guest on a number of previous Just Right broadcasts, and we never once cut him off for telling it like it is. Just stunning what we heard there. Um, you know, the CBC announcer actually asked him who might be behind these attacks and why did they unfold the way they do. But it was clear that that was the last question he ever wanted an answer to. You know, <laughs> it was just yeah. amazing. John's telling him, we've been warned. ISIS has said they'll begin a cascade of attacks. Um, just on and on it goes. And what else did he say? He said, uh, um, and then the announcer comes, although there's a couple of things we should point out, cautions here, you know, we don't know. Right after he asked who might be behind the attacks, no one claimed responsibility and we don't know. But hey, John tells him other terrorist groups have used this method, classic diversion, all the signs are there. And, uh, and he says, uh, I just wanted to draw, though, a couple of important distinctions, one we haven't made, that we don't know who's responsible. And on and on this goes. I just, I just can't believe all these cautions. How utterly rude and insulting of that news interviewer, whose name I thankfully didn't get, uh, to ask John Thompson who might be behind these attacks and why, and then interrupt his speculative answers. Um, it was obvious in the term of the question's context, and it was a clear evasion of the obvious in terms of actually knowing who might be responsible. They already knew. I actually spoke to John myself this past weekend, and of course, Robert, you and I, we expect to have him back on the show in an upcoming broadcast sometime over the next few weeks. That should be interesting. <laughs> oh, yes. I look forward to that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have to say, I move that the CBC claim responsibility for gutter journalism, Islamophobia, outright false propaganda, and the promotion of false information, hatred of Christians, hatred of freedom and capitalism, and a love of terrorism to the point that they can't even say the word comfortably unless some external authority, like Seven of Nine or somebody, <laughs> including the terrorists themselves, approve of it. That's okay. You know, oh. yeah. They are the enablers. They oh. let this happen. It, I, I almost think they're pushing the cart. But, yeah. here's, you know, but here they accept a terrorist word, which apparently is a greater factor than the evidence of their own senses and of reason itself. Now, Robert, you and I, I know we're fans. I found this article, and somebody has addressed this whole issue in a way far better than I could, or, or just as I might. And it was someone I least expected. And this is from an interview that happened before this event, October 15th, from Breebart News Network. And they were interviewing John Rhys-Davies, 
who is the famous Welsh oh, yes. actor. You, you and I know him. He played uh, Leonardo mm-hmm. da Vinci on the, on the Voyager series, you know. And yeah. they, he, he's known for over 200 film and TV credits, including... So Sliders, that, too, wasn't he? He was in Sliders. He was in Indiana Jones, Lord of the Rings, the 1987 Bond yes. movie, Living Daylights. Yes. Uh, Shogun, Chips, Robin Hood, Great Expectations, Untouchables, Murder, She Wrote. Yeah, Sliders, Once Upon a Time. Didn't know he was there. Wasn't he also in the movie The Day the Earth, Earth Caught Fire? He didn't have a beard in that one. I could only tell who he was by his voice. <laughs> oh, now you're, now you're yeah. asking the question. But apparently he's, he was interviewed in connection with his movie Return to the Hiding Place, which is uh, apparently a moral work. And uh, John was asked about that film, and he thinks it's a great story about eternal moral issues. And they got in, onto this conversation about what's going on in Europe. By then, of course, the, 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 uh, the migrant crisis had already started when they had this conversation. And the... The, uh, the uh, interviewer from Bebart News says, one of the things that really struck me was a quote at the beginning and at the end of the movie, as the will of the students goes, so goes the will of the nation. And he responded that ideologies have always fought for the young mind. Um, you know, real life is what sorts out our views. He says he remembers being a radical socialist until quite disgracefully late on, <laughs> until his 27th or 8th year. He says by that time he had actually become responsible for other people, and so he had to realize he had to change his thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they started talking about ISIS and the whole killing of Christians en masse and what was going on, and he said... Slavery is back. This is John Reese davis saying this. And he says, this drives me to a fury. And this is him talking now. Getting rid of slavery is one of the great successes of Western European Christian civilization. I am shocked, for instance, that the black community, which has historically a recent experience of slavery in their ancestry, is not raging at this reemergence of slavery. He says, and let me go further. If there is an ideology that even obliges any of us to tolerate the notion that slavery is a legitimate form of expressing God's will, then my suggestion is there's no place in Western civilized society for anyone even prepared to countenance that. There is no place in Western society for anyone who can tolerate slavery. The damnable thing about political correctness is that it's making us all shy to speak out, he says. Hmm. And then he adds... Throughout the West, there is an abject failure of vision and leadership, an abject failure to understand that certain values have to be defended. He says, our leaders must be judged by what they stand up for as much as what they fail to stand up for. And then he said he has considerable contempt for his own government, which of course is Britain. (laughs) And he said, I love the United States of America. I do believe it's still the last and best hope of mankind, a nation founded in such an intellectually elevated manner with such extraordinarily, extraordinary principles. And he's t- of course, this, was, uh, this interview took place in the States. You should be proud of your country, he says. But let me talk about the European example. He says, we got conned into joining the common market. It was sold to us as a market, not as a political system. Ooh, good comment, eh? Yeah. And in doing this, we have belittled all of the little virtues of individual nations. And when you stop being patriotic about Britain, for instance, you create a vacuum. And he started talking about the whole Scottish separation and all that stuff. You remember how that all started? Yeah. And he says, if you play down the things that bind you, you weaken a society. If you do not believe that America is, is great, if you're not allowed to say, my country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, you will find sectional forces in your country trying to break it down. 
All countries have centrifugal forces trying to tear them apart. The way that you hold your society together is because you have that extraordinary document, the Constitution. Be wary of people who want to change the Constitution because it's the glue that holds your people together, which, of course, it enunciates the principles, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, Western civilization, he says, is one of the greatest glories of mankind. We stand for liberty, liberty of association, freedom of speech, equality before the law, these are the glories of our ancestors. We are afraid of being politically incorrect or of hurting someone by suggesting that perhaps their value system may not be quite as nice as ours. If so, then we are fools and ultimately scoundrels. I can just hear him saying that word. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a word he uses a lot, actually. Now he's, got, he's had some brilliant things to say in that interview. Oh, it just goes on. And uh, the, or the interviewer says, you've mentioned that democracy is not compatible with Sharia law and points to one of the presidential candidates, Dr. Ben Carson, who's not a career politician, said, un said recently that Sharia law and the Constitution of the U.S. are not compatible. And because of that, a Muslim should not become the president of the United States. And John Reese davies replies, well, if you believe in the rule of law, in constitutional law, then you can't do that and believe in Sharia at the same time. <laughs> he says he thinks that people are genuinely fleeing from persecution. They have a right to a haven. Unfortunately, in Europe, it's not quite as simple as that because most, I would think, probably four and five of the migrants trying to get into Europe at the moment are economic migrants. He doesn't see them as refugees. Geez, where have I heard that before? Oh, of course, and, yes. and, and he was saying this a long time ago. He says, but the real elephant in the room, the unspoken elephant in the room was actually said to me by a Kurdish taxi driver in Sweden two weeks ago. He said, John, you're avoiding the real issue. Why is there no peace in the Middle East? It's because of Islam. And since he was a Muslim, I thought that was a moment of courage and as hopeful a statement as one could expect. The real elephant in the room is Islam. Your heart goes out to people who try and square the circle. And you know in their heart of hearts to admit that it can't be squared. Look, he says, this is the problem. The problem is Islam itself. It is the elephant in the room, and we're afraid to say that we ought to look at finding a way of helping the people who've been enslaved by Islam. For don't forget that in many countries Islam is enforced on people. I think one of the debates that I'd like to see going is, how do you put Islam to the moral test of the West? Good question. In order, or if in order to rationalize your faith, you've got to admit that, you know, yes, technically speaking, the Holy Prophet Muhammad did justify slavery, and because of that, you should apply it now. You have no place in Western society. You are not a Westerner. You have no right to be part of the concerns of the modern humanity. You have sacrificed it. And that basically was his whole point, you know. Well said, well said. And, uh, at the end, he talks about how we love stories. You and I always talk about stories. Even Islam yes. is a story. Christianity is a story. Most religions are stories. And he says, we just love stories. And all the best stories are sort of about right and wrong, good and evil, aren't they? It makes for a very difficult world when we say, well, we're all wrong. We're all evil in a way. And my beliefs are just as troublesome as your beliefs. And the fact that we oppose each other, it might be my fault. And that is the curse of the modern politically correct mind, isn't it? In the end, we, there have to be a number of moral agreed certainties that we bind ourselves to observe, and if we don't, we'll fall apart. Brilliantly, brilliantly said. I have to give him a hand for that. Yes, yes, indeed. And, you know, that's the big issue. I heard a lot of conversations this week talking about all sorts of stuff, and a lot of people 
properly thinking in terms of the big, the long-term solution is quote-unquote education, or at least fighting ideas with ideas. But how can we fight political Islam if everyone's terrified to even say the words that need to be I identified and defined? I've heard world leaders, reporters, commentators using meaningless terms like terrorism with reluctance even though, um, even though terrorism, by the way, is not what we're fighting. We're fighting this extremist Islam philosophy, extremist ideology without naming it, Sharia law without defining it, anything to distance the Islamists from their ideology. And we also fail to make necessary distinctions, like we talked about before, Muslim versus Islam, the political versus the religious. I think that distinction alone, uh, we've got to do another show on, just like we were talking about earlier. The West fails to stay focused on the state of goals of Islamism, which is theocracy, the, meddling, the melding of state and religion, a religion of submission and obedience, and yet people still don't get it. The utter chaotic and confused belief that this Islamist issue has something to do with Mideast oil and all that other crap, it's a conflict that's gone on for centuries. We are witnessing the collapse of Western civilization and the critical values of survival upon which it depends. Wrote Ayn Rand, quote, as in the case of an individual, so in the case of a culture. Disasters can be accomplished subconsciously, but a cure cannot. A cure in both cases requires conscious knowledge, a consciously grasped, explicit philosophy. It is impossible to predict the time of a philosophical renaissance. One can only define the road to follow, but not its length. What is certain, however, is that every aspect of Western culture needs a new code of ethics, a rational ethics as a precondition of rebirth, end quote. Believe it or not, that was from Ayn Rand's essay, What is Romanticism, of all things, sure. right after she was talking about art and, art and literature and discussing people like Rod Serling and Alfred Hitchcock, believe it or not. And she says, when reason and philosophy are reborn, literature will be the first phoenix to rise out of today's ashes. And Robert, hopefully talk radio and television reporting, will rise out of the gutter and elevate the discussion. <laughs> Robert and I are working on it. More we to try. do next week. More to do next week when we return. Join us then when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the bedclothes. Everything will be alright. Guten Abend. Ich bin Deutsch. Your German is terrible. <laughs> hey, what are you doing? All right, sound off, buddy. Who are you? Corporal Lebo. I'm digging for mushrooms. That's cute. No, it's true. Every Friday we have social champignon and boiled potatoes. I'm a POW. Yeah, who won the World Series in 1940? Who won the World Series? How do I know? Ask me who was at the Folie Berger in 1940. That I know. You're a POW? Yes, I like 13. Braden. Hi. This is Mills. Hi, Mills. We tunneled out of Stalag 9 a couple hours ago. we got to get in touch with Colonel Hogan. Colonel Hogan? Now, why didn't he nullify us through the underground? We took off on our own. We need fake ID cards, civilian clothes, maps, and money. How about it? Well, that's possible. Do you have a reservation? You mean a guy has to make a reservation for an escape? Well, we booked right through New Year's Eve. <laughs> You tunnel through Times Square? Kaminsky, Corporal Walter. Kaminsky, Corporal Walter. Palmer, Sergeant John Hackensack, New Palmer, Jersey. Sergeant John. Hey, any mail for me? <laughs> That's all of them, Colonel. Could be it's only the first wave. <laughs> 
were up to you, would abortion be illegal? Yes. What would be what would be your ideal penalty, say, for a woman who had an abortion or a doctor who performed one? Would death. Death. I'm just kidding. Was she just kidding? Yes, that was Ann Coulter on Just Right number 142. Check it out online, www.justrightmedia.org. No kidding.